This program is brought to you by Emory University. Gary completed his doctoral studies at the University of Ulster in June 1998, graduating with a PhD from the School of Psychology. He also holds an honorary doctorate from Florida Southern College for his role in peace building in Ireland. In the Queen's birthday honors list in 2007, Gary was made a member of the Order of the British Empire for his work in the peace process and was awarded the honor in the autumn of 2007 by Her Royal Highness Queen Elizabeth at Buckingham Palace. In the course of his ministry, Gary has been involved in the peace process and behind the scenes taken part in discussions with those wedded to violence in our society, trying to present an alternative way to resolve the differences on this island. Gary is particularly interested in the role of religion in conflict transformation. Gary has spoken at political gatherings in Ireland, Europe, and the Middle East, seeking to engage others in, le in lessons to be learned from the Irish peace process. He has traveled widely in the USA, lecturing in churches, colleges, universities, and denominational settings across the United States from Harvard, Boston College, Boston University, Tufts, Emory, Duke, University of Alabama, Florida Southern College, Birmingham Southern College, Fairmont State University. So he knows the U.S. well. He's also appeared on several different television programs and radio programs um, in various documentaries and is often being interviewed about when things are going on on the ground in Northern Ireland peace process. So let us welcome Dr. the Reverend Dr. Gary Mason. Thanks, <laughs> hey, first of all, let me say it's an honor to be here. Uh, to thank your Dean very much, Jan, for her very warm words of welcome, and also to pay tribute to her for her immense ministry within Worldwide Methodism over so, so many, many years, Jan. Again, to thank Beth, um, who's been a, a good friend over the last number of years, and to pay tribute to her work in YTI, which is a, a trying to persuade her this is a global model, not just a model to be kept in Atlanta, so we're having some conversations about possibly expanding that onto a, a wider stage. Let me begin with a little bit of romance. You need that on a Wednesday morning. Okay, memory. Okay, based on a survey of 1,000 U.S. adults, 48% of men still have feelings for an ex. 37% of women still have feelings for an ex. Overall, two in five adults feel they let the right one get away. So no analysis this morning, but I just want to talk about the power of memory. Last year I was facilitating a group of Palestinians and Israelis in Belfast. And I told a story that I've told, and Beth has heard it, I'm sure, 101 times, about a bombing that I was involved in in the Shankill. And I got very emotional. It was 1993, and I broke down, had to recover myself, and I thought I'd dealt with that memory. I thought I'd parted a long, long time ago. But yet for some reason, as I looked in the faces of those Palestinians and those Israelis, I just broke down. The power of memory for good and for bad. I would want to suggest to you, for any person involved in reconciliation, that memory is a key component. A Dutch Reform professor, speaking in reconciliation, said these words. 
Reconciliation is no cheap matter. It does not come about by simply papering over deep-seated differences. And then he suggests reconciliation presupposes confrontation. Without that, we do not get reconciliation, but merely a temporary glossing over of differences. The running sores of society, he suggests, cannot be healed with the use of a sticking plaster. Reconciliation presupposes an operation, a cutting the very bone without anesthetic. The infection is not just on the surface. The abscess of hate and mistrust and fear, and then he contextualizes it in the South African situation, between black and white, nation and nation, rich and poor, has to be slashed open. And yet religious people at times, we don't do confrontation very well. We're very good at a kind of temporary glossing over of difference in our churches. Let's pretend it's all okay, but don't upset. Don't do confrontation. But then reconciliation, as that Dutch reform professor suggests, is no cheap matter. Let me give you some statistics on the Northern Ireland conflict. Over a period of 30 years in a population of 1.7 million people, there were 47,000 injuries, 36,000 shootings, 22,000 armed robberies, 20 to 30,000 people charged with paramilitary offences, 16,000 bombings and attempted bombings, over 2,000 arson attacks, and almost 4,000 deaths. And while the Good Friday Agreement in 1998, I've often remarked, was a masterpiece in political compromise, it was not necessarily a masterpiece in building peace. And a professor at Queen's recently said, in the Irish context, we most certainly knew how to end the war. We're just not sure how to build the peace. So let me just highlight a few things as we look at this topic together. The first thing I want to suggest to you is do not underestimate memory. The United Nations Handbook on Reconciliation suggests that a number of post-conflict countries sometimes choose to ignore the past completely. And that arises from a natural human instinct that all of us have. Don't reopen those old wounds. Don't endanger the fragile peace. I mean, Cambodia is often cited as an example. Other societies were a kind of forced amnesia as a part of a conscious strategy. People would suggest that a lot of the violence that happened in some Latin American countries has just been glossed over. Don't open it up. But history teaches us that in the long run, such a policy is actually a serious obstacle on the road to dealing with a divided past to a shared future. So amnesia is the enemy, I would suggest, of reconciliation. It refuses victims the public acknowledgement of their past, but also invites offenders to take the path of denial. It deprives future generations of the opportunity to understand and learn from the past and participate in the building of a lasting 
reconciliation. But let me just do a twist on that and suggest that memory is also a two-edged sword. It can play a crucial role in making reconciliation sustainable, but it also has the capacity to hinder reconciliation processes. So one writer, Andrew Rigby, suggests there's a danger of too much memory. He says too great a concern with remembering the past can mean that the divisions and conflicts of old never die. So the wounds are never healed. In such circumstances, the past continues to dominate the present and hence to some degree dominates the future. I wrote an article a few months ago there for a, a British newspaper and in it I said, as I drive the 1.5 miles to my office every day, the past screams out to me from every gable wall. For any of you that know the Irish situation, we commemorate the past with these uh, murals or wall paintings that just, just literally scream out, telling the story of what they did to us, not what we did to them. So memory tends to be selective. Memory can be manipulated as well. I mean, policymakers in many post-conflict societies often tend to impose a version of the past that increases the chances of a much-needed unity being achieved, understandable, we may say. Post-World War II France, where the German population had deeply divided the population into resistors on the one hand and collaborators on the other. And after the war, there was a well-planned operation of public discourse and academic research that minimized the importance of collaboration and lifted the role of the French resistance to a much higher level. And it was really only in the 1960s that the cracks began to appear in this official self-image and old divisions rose again to challenge it. If any of you have seen the movie Cyrus Key that deals with the whole uh, role of French people in Paris collaborating with the Nazis in the Holocaust, ignited a whole debate within France. Polish society is another example, the movie Aftermath, if you've seen it, is a kind of contemporary drama that takes place in a village in 2001. And the inspiration for this movie was based on the 2000 publication of the book Neighbours by the Polish-American historian Gross, in which it simply came out it wasn't the Nazis that had murdered the Jews, it was the residents of the police village. In your own context, the movie, Twelve Years a Slave, uh, the writer Mark Curtam in The Guardian, based on the 19th century memoir of Solomon Northup, follows the tribulations of an educated carpenter, musician and family man from New York State, who in 1841 is kidnapped, sold into slavery. This is actually a shocking common phenomenon. This was not an isolated incident. This was a common phenomenon. He stripped of his past, identity, and his humanity. It's an important story, told with passion, conviction, and grace. So memory can also be a powerful tool for achieving reconciliation. And interestingly, nations and people 
weave our sense of themselves into these narratives. Those, those stories tell us what we need to know about ourselves and how we remember what has happened to us. I grew up in a very charged sectarian society within Northern Ireland. I was taught to hate from an early age. I was speaking at the Sinn Féin conference a number of years ago in Dublin in the Rotunda Rooms, which is really the kind of holy grail of Sinn Féin where their movement was formed. And I was from that, that British Unionist loyalist tradition. And I said to these 300 people, Jerry Adams was there, many other of their senior figures, I said, I want to teach you a song. It's a song my grandfather, who took me to church every Sunday, taught me as a little boy. It goes like this. Sprinkle, splatter, holy brown water. We'll scatter those papishes, everyone. If that doesn't do, sure, we'll cut them in two and we'll give them a touch of the orange and blue, Protestant colours. What impact that had on me psychologically as a six-year-old, I don't know. I haven't gone into therapy over it, I promise you. But it did teach me how to be cautious or hit the other side. So I say to all of us in this room, the power of how we tell our, our story is pretty phenomenal. Let me just press the rewind button and take us to the Balkans in the mid-1980s. I think a number of commentators felt that there was some integration there coming about in the Balkans. But I want to take you to three homes, and I want to tell you a story. So here are... Mr. and Mrs. Serb, your Mr. and Mrs. Muslim, and your Mr. and Mrs. Croat. It's nine o'clock at night, and the kids are playing there just in front of you. They're about to go to bed, and the parents are talking. So let's listen to the parents in the Serb home. Us Serbs, we are the one true church. We are Orthodox. We're the one true church. Those, those Catholics, they allied themselves, those Croats, they allied themselves with the Nazis during the Second World War. And as for those Muslims, look at what they did to us under the Ottoman Empire. And the kids listen and they hear the story. We go into the home of Mr. and Mrs. Croat and the kids are listening. Us Catholics... We're the one true church. I mean, theology tells you clearly that Peter was the first pope. The ascendancy began then. It's not those orthodox, it's us. And as for those Muslims, look at what they did to us under the Ottoman Empire. We go into the home of Mr. and Mrs. Muslim and they're reminding themselves of the barbaric history of the Christian church with the Crusades. Look at what they did to us. And the kids hear the stories and they, they pass the pain from generation to generation to generation. So for all of us, I guess, me included, how do we tell the stories of memory, the stories of the past? Because people often construct their past using what scholars would call a very particular interpretive key. It's a way of reading history, enabling people to understand themselves. Why do we do that? How do we do it? I remember a number of years ago being in Atlanta here and uh, visiting the site Lorama with a, a friend of mine who was an architect. And uh, after we came out, uh, his wife was a pharmacist. They're a highly educated couple. And uh, he turned to me and he said, as we walked through the lobby at the end, and he said, isn't it awful, Gary, 
with those damn Yankees did the our city? Sort of looked at him. He says, long ago was that, Michael? And he said, oh, I guess about 150 years. And you still remember. And I said, how do you think we feel? 800 years of history. Processing it in a bloody sectarian conflict. Let me just look for a moment at memory and superiority. You've heard it 101 times how victory gives the victor the official right to tell the story. The story of triumphalism, superiority, of destiny, of a mission to civilize these people. The nasty bits are often left out. The reality of massacres and murder, they're forgotten. But the vanquished retain their memories. What one has suffered, one never forgets. So the story then becomes a story of resistance, a, a story of resentment. And a hope for a change, a transformation of the oppression and the situation. The vanquished often has to face the forgetfulness of the victor. As the Irish Times columnist said, in our collective memory, we're always the victims, never the perpetrators. Always the victims, never the perpetrators. And the theologian Frederick Buniger talking about anger, and we can apply it to these situations, talks about how we roll it down, we eat it almost like a meal, down to the last morsel, licking our lips, remembering those memories of the past. And yet he has a quotation at the end of that where he says, the irony is the person we are wolfing down is ourselves. The whole reality of anger. Let me just highlight thirdly, some interpretive keys in Irish memory. Let's look at my community, okay? The Ulster Protestant Unionist British Loyalist community who see themselves as distinctly British and want to remain with that link to the United Kingdom. What interpretive keys do they use and how do they use them? Siege. 1689, trapped in the walled city of Derry. Massacre at the hands of Catholics, 1641. Resistance, 1689, 1912, the Home Rule Crisis. 1985, the Anglo-Irish Agreement. Blood Sacrifice, 1641, 1690, 1916. They hear, some, hear a lot of those themes. I mean, the religious themes. Sacrifice. Uh, sociologist Nigel Davis, there a number of years ago, who did his doctoral studies at Oxford, looked at the whole concept of blood sacrifice and suggested that psychologically there's something in the human nature that wants to shed blood. He even talks about the, the rock star Alice Cooper, if you remember, how he used to bite off the head of live chickens and sprinkle the blood around the stage. And he was asking the question, what is it in us? that is so absorbed with blood sacrifice as human beings. Struggle and deliverance, 1689, 1690. Victory over Catholics, 1690. So my story was a story of conquest. Endurance, sacrifice, deliverance, fear of betrayal, and the endless need for, remember my grandest song, vigilance against those Catholics. 
So memory is a form of resistance. The story is endlessly replayed, and as Beth would tell you, who's often been to our parades, they're a device of memory, a, a ritual recording the endless need for a vigil. The story of Protestant martyrdom, Catholic duplicity. There are also echoes of the history of Israel, of the covenant community who've been delivered, surrounded by pagan enemies, liable to corrupt with their idolatry and destroy with their violence. I often have stood, as Beth knows, Israelis and Palestinians in our interfaces and on the Protestant side, flying alongside the British flag or the flag of Northern Ireland is the Israeli flag. Flying the tricolour on the other side, the Irish flag, is the Palestinian flag. You're all, you're all stunned now, aren't you? You aren't the only one. I had a group of uh, ultra-Orthodox Israeli journalists with me six weeks ago. And these guys, you know, with all their religious gear, were standing in the peace line, scratching their keepers, going, what the hell is going on here? We're 3,000 miles from Israel. What is happening? Let me tell you what's happening. Toxic theology. Dispensational theology. Feeding into that whole aspect that we will be liberated or raptured the others will be left behind. Why do Catholics associate themselves with Palestinians? The IRA were armed and trained by the PLO. The side of the oppressed. So we play games with politics. We play games with theology. What interpretive keys do you have within the United States? You work on that one, not me. Okay. <laughs> the Irish Catholic community. What are their interpretive keys? Defeat the Battle of Conceal, 1603, 1690. Victimization, Cromwell, the Puritans. That stern theology. The famine, partition. Betrayal, dispossession of the land. Injustice, oppression, the penal laws. And the eternal cycle of sacrifice, ennobling failure, and rebirth, redemption, the Easter rising of 1916. They chose to do it on the day of that theological word, resurrection again. So some of that's linked to those sacrificial themes of Irish Catholicism. Stories of durance during times of persecution. So memory is also a form of resistance in that Catholic tradition. But what do we share? Sacrifice is a strong theme. We need to remain loyal to what past generations have done. But sacrifice like vengeance is a kind of a ritualistic violence that binds the present to the past. So what do we do then? We keep those memories hidden. And what we remember, one scholar suggests, is a constructive narrative. You drive out the reality, this bit is not fitting into my narrative. One scholar says what we need is a, a deep remembering, which discloses a complexity of events and a complexity of identity. Memories are suppressed because talking about them is much too painful. Returning to the point of the pain causes great difficulty for both victims and perpetrators. 
And yet in my work, I bring former enemies together. Six weeks ago, in a room full of 50 people, some of them ex-combatants involved in IRA violence, others in loyalist violence, had two people, Catholic and Protestant, telling their story. Encouraging what I would call a deep remembering. Talking about the complexity of conflict. It's a non-simplistic way to deal with the past. Letting people hear the power of the story. And so a faith-based account puts weight on establishing the truth about the past, acknowledging guilt and responsibility, acting forgivingly, and then moving on. A colleague of mine, John Brewer, who's a, a leading sociologist at Queen's University, has suggested, as many of us have, that it's not the role of politicians to build peace. Uh, Bill Clinton played a very strategic role in the Northern Ireland peace process, but I mean, let me remind you, peace processes are not made on the lawn of the White House, or in Downing Street, or in Jerusalem, or in Ramallah, or in Cape Town, or in Pretoria. It's really what I would call civic society, people like us. We're the people that build peace. So let me read you a quotation from John. It's lengthy, but it's worth listening to. However, the negotiated settlement is never the end of peacemaking. For accords mostly leave unresolved the process for realizing social healing. So keep that phrase in mind, social healing. And by that, I mean reconciliation between protagonists. Social relationship building across a community divide civil society repair and replacement of brokenness by the development of tolerance and compromises. So what are the actions then that focus the social peace process? They include truth. It's a word we own as Christians. Reconciliation. Forgiveness. Policies that facilitate and encourage public tolerance and compromise, new forms of memory work, memorialization and remembering, public apologies, metanoia we call it, repentance, attention to cultural symbols, national flags, anthems and the like. But John has suggested strongly, and politicians need to hear this, that societal healing is either ignored by negotiations or the political process, or more interestingly, assumed to follow naturally from the signing of the agreement. And John would suggest that it's a rather naive assumption that once you sort out problematic politics, societal healing occurs effortlessly. So if we focus attention on the political peace process, the demand for its operation and implementation is naturally political. So peace processes then, very simply, colleagues, become the property, the ownership of governments. And the political actors that make up 
or aspire to be governments. So political actors negotiate the settlements, they occupy the new governance structures, they oversee the new institutions, they either endorse them or collapse them, making political decisions about whether to stick with them, not stick with them, they make the new political arrangements. So peace processes then become the ownership of politicians. But John suggests once we realise, and we need to realise this, that once peace processes become social peace processes, that's a need for healing within society, peace processes become the responsibility of people like us who live in society to emerge out of conflict and the domain in which they function. So they're consolidated, they're widened to include civil society. So social peace becomes my responsibility and yours. It's every person's, not just politicians. Just push on. The power of memory and its volatility. In a population of 1.7 million people in Northern Ireland, we have over 4 thousand parades, four thousand parades. They're endless, commemorating the past. It's replayed continually. Not a week goes past, apart from in the winter months, where there's not a multiplicity of parades. A battle between opposing ideologies and groups. So, so the past is actually, it's an argument about the present. That's what it becomes. And the literary critic Edna Longley said, commemorations, a wonderful quotation is, commemorations are as selective as sympathies. They honour our dead, not your dead. And in reality, commemoration can revive conflict. At the moment, back in Belfast, in a small location, which one or two in this room are aware of, there's an ongoing, what on my side of the community they're calling a civil rights camp because a certain Protestant parade was not able to go past a Catholic interface area. There's a whole debate around that and time does not permit me to talk about that. What does shared space mean? Should people be allowed to parade on arterial routes? How do you share space after a conflict? I mean, John Hume, the uh, more moderate nationalist politician, said his worry about our peace process was that we end up with a form of benign apartheid. Not what you and I would call structural apartheid, but benign apartheid. It's not institutionalised, it's not legalised, but it's there. And it is there. You know, for colleagues of mine in this room will tell you quite categorically that Belfast has seen more uh, peace lines or separation barriers or security barriers since the signing of the Good Friday Agreement in 1998. The Good Friday Agreement was meant to do away with these. So with the result in effect, 90% of people in the northern part of Ireland still lead segregated lives. So commemoration can revive conflict. That dangerous power of memory to stir up hatred and desire for revenge. Every week I hear stories of what they did to us. And people come up with solutions. I mean, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa is often put out as a possible model. And let me tell you a story, and I'm just going to leave this unanswered. 
It's a story of a black man who was in his mid-40s, who was murdered by the white South African police. And after the death of this black man, the white South African police made his son wash his hands in a basin, his 18-year-old son, wash his hands in a basin containing his father's blood. And one commentator after hearing that story said, how much truth can we I actually don't know the answer. I thought, I thought about that story 101 times. Because as people, you know, as people of the book, we, we're in the truth. And he asked that very penetrating, disturbing question. How much truth can we actually take? So memory can be incredibly volatile. Let me just suggest further, memory is also an incredibly powerful tool. Because the victor attempts to erase the memory of those who have suffered. The commentator Michael E. Gatchner says, In its wake, the past may be rewritten so that no record of the victim's presence is allowed to remain. In March of this year, I was facilitating a dialogue at the uh, Irish ambassador's home in Israel in Tel Aviv. Uh, between a group that Beth knows I work with, a group called Shades. It's Palestinians and Israelis aged 23 to 33. It's the, the emerging leadership. Uh, the reason for this program is I think they've come to the conclusion that these people are never going to do a deal, and if a deal is ever done, it's going to be left to the next generation, i.e. 23 to 33, to implement this deal. And so in that messy chaos of Middle East politics... Uh, Professor Mohammed Dejani had taken a group of Palestinians to Auschwitz. He came back to Al-Quds University and he lost his professorship because they said it was part of normalization. Some of the Israelis had gone into Palestine to see the refugee camps and they come under pressure too. And then the Holocaust come up. And then the Nakba come up. And I just made one suggestion. I asked the Palestinians painfully try to understand the psychological impact the Holocaust still has on the mind of Israelis. But I said to the Israelis, you know, if I was uh, the Bibi Netanyahu, let me tell you what I would do. I would have an educational program where, where people within Israel of a Jewish extraction would understand the pain of the Nakba, the catastrophe. You mightn't agree with the narrative, but I, I would want you to understand how 20% of, of your population at least feels about it. And that has been my, my work. I mean, last Saturday I had a group of Catholics and Protestants in Dublin. Were the Protestants, some of them for the first time, Paula, for example, who is a wonderful woman in our church who was a, a flag protester, a strong Protestant, but heard for the first time that people from her community, Protestants who were, who were poets, who were literary writers, had taken place in the Easter uprising. Those constructive narratives. How do we hear each other's pain? How do we create a context to do that? So let me spend a little bit of time on this uh, next point. This is the most volatile issue facing us in Northern Ireland at the moment. I was saying to your, your dean and some of my colleagues that that's the big issue. Because the Good Friday Agreement uh, didn't deal with the past. Uh, Richard Haas and Professor Megan O'Sullivan from Harvard University spent from September to December last year trying to get the parties over the line. They failed. 
John Kerry has just appointed uh, Senator Gary Hart as his uh, peace envoy to Northern Ireland, again to deal with the past. And I was interestingly saying that I, I met Gary Hart there a while ago when he, he has a background in theology. He studied uh, divinity at Yale in the early 1960s and I was encouraging him to, to, use, to use theology because that's part of the story. It's part of the narrative. Good theology brings about good healing. The whole emotional aspect in the Northern Ireland conflict Apparently there are 12 uh, fundamental emotions in natural philosophical literature. Nine unpleasant, okay, and three pleasant. Let me, let me say them just slowly, okay, and see if you can relate to them to any form of conflict. I'll, I'll do the unpleasant ones first. Sorrow. Fear. Anger. Jealousy, shame, disgust, pain, confusion, and emptiness. The pleasant ones are love, joy, and awe. The emotions of the past seem to shape the present and future in constant collision with one another. The mental health of our post-conflict population is messy. 70% of ex-prisoners state that they have experienced poor emotional health, 70%. 24% of Republicans on the IRA side, 17% of loyalists report symptoms of serious psychological trauma, depression, deep-seated emotional stress. 41% of ex-prisoners report taking medication for anxiety or sleeping difficulties. 54% of loyalists, 56% of Republicans report feeling seriously depressed at some time since their release. 32% said they felt they didn't want to continue living. 51% reported being troubled by memories or dreams. 72% of Republicans, 64% of loyalists were over what you and I would call the threshold of hazardous drinking. 42% of probable mental health problems. So as I said, the Good Friday Agreement was a masterpiece in political compromise. It was not a document for emotional well-being. That's the role, as John Brewer has suggested, of civic society to deal with that. So how do we remember, how do we, how do we deal with the past? Because how people remember profoundly affects the way they behave in the present and significantly affects their politics. I mean, one person said, the debris we carry with us each of hurt and counter-hurt is part of today's reality. It pushes people back to standing on their own and against their enemies. And again, let me use the power of theology. Lament or grieving. We need to lament for what has been lost what has been done. 
We need to acknowledge anger, bitterness, pain, resentment, loss of identity, uncertainty. And to do that, we need a language. And I would suggest that the resources available in the whole biblical language of lament and those ritual actions of us as a faith community are of help in this. We need to have that ability to tell our stories, and it's painful telling those stories. That's what one scholar called a felt history, seeing the other's perspective. The Beth is aware that in January of this year, there was an event at East Belfast Mission at our Skenus Complex, where uh, Jude Berry, who lost her father in the Brighton bombing, uh, where Patrick McGee, who was an IRA bomber, attempted to wipe out Margaret Thatcher and her cabinet. He almost succeeded. And in our complex, uh, we've built Skenos for a number of reasons, but one of the reasons we said was to have those hard, difficult conversations. That was one of the purposes. And so we brought Patrick McGee and Joe Berry together uh, to tell their story, a story of forgiveness, a story of reconciliation. So it's a typical dirty, dark, dank Belfast evening in mid-January. There's a large square in Skenos. So across the square were 50 riot police. On the other side, some extreme loyalists uh, protesting. And uh, I'm sure you don't mind me saying one swear word in the course of this. They were, they were singing that new Methodist hymn, Gary Mason is a bastard, <laughs> for daring to bring a murderer into this complex. The irony is that five or six loyalists who would have fought against Patrick McGee inside being his bodyguard. So it's all a bit of an enigma this year. Those who have moved on, those who haven't. On the way out, Patrick McGee, the Brighton bomber, turns to the police who 20 years ago he would have tried to kill and said, I, I'm, I'm sorry about this uh, for causing so much difficulty tonight. But out of that I wrote an article, which I, I know I sent to one of two of you, but just, just let me read it. It's an article simply called, I Know Bombers. On the 23rd of October 1993, I, I stood outside the Matter Hospital on the Crumlin Road in Belfast. With my arms around Alan McBride, whose wife Sharon had just been murdered by an IRA bomber in the Shankill bombing. His words still echo in my mind, she's gone, she's gone. I got to know Alan and Sharon while doing theology at Queen's University, Belfast. And one of my ministerial placements was at their home church as I, as I trained to be an ordained minister. I'd done the scripture reading that day at their wedding. A few years earlier to that fateful October day. That evening of the 23rd of October, I was at the bedside of Wilma McKee a few hours before she died. The victim of the Shankill IRA bomber, Wilma was just 38 years of age. And she'd been relieved 24 hours earlier with the news that she was clear of cancer on the Friday. And as I left that hospital room, I met her family clinging to any sort of hope in that catastrophic situation. And even today, as I've said in this article, I can still close my eyes and I can line up exactly where they are. I still remember the colour of the paint on the walls of that hospital, 1993. I got home that evening, having been out all day, comforting those caught up in that nightmare, and I cried myself to sleep. 
I know better than most about bombers. I know the awful devastation that the IRA bombers, and indeed any bomber, can visit on the lives of the innocent. I conducted the service of the most famous UVF bomber turned peacemaker and loyalist politician, David Irvine, in January 2007. We became good friends. And almost by accident, I got caught up in the furore that surrounded the visit of the Brighton bomber Patrick McGee to the East Belfast Mission's Skenos site. I felt, however, that the event, painful as it was to some, should go ahead. Peacemaking is incredibly risky. Those who protested that evening outside the East Belfast Mission may or may not have said of the bad sides of those dying from bomb injuries, or said of the bad side of the late David Irvine as he breathed his last breath. The bomber turned peacemaker. I know better than most about bombers. And in this sentence, if you ask me why Patrick McGee, the Brighton bomber, was allowed on the premises of East Belfast Mission in the loyalist heartland of East Belfast, it's simple. I do not want any more Patrick McGee's. I know bombers. I know firsthand the pain they can inflict. And as a follower of Jesus Christ, if a controversial dialogue stops anyone else ever planting a bomb on this island, I'm going to dialogue and take risks for peace. And to those protesters outside the mission, this may seem strange, but most of you are quite young. You have, I hope, an amazing future ahead of you, a future free from bombers. I do not want to be visiting you as a clergy person in a bloody bed or conducting your funeral in a few years' time, the victim of a dissident bomber. And the site you stood on to protest today, and these kids wouldn't even have known this, was a site where I took a strategic risk and brought the British Secretary of State and Tony Blair's cabinet, Dr John Reid, to meet the Loyalist Commission in July 2002 to pave a way forward for Loyalists to embrace the peace process. It was a site where the late David Irvine was buried from in January 2007. It was also the site from where the UVF and Red Hat Commando did their decommissioning statement. They were the only paramilitary or terrorist grouping out of all of them to do their decommissioning statement on a church site, which was my site. Echoes of Isaiah beating swords into plowshares. It was also the site where Her Majesty the Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh came in March 2008 to commend the work of East Belfast Mission. And I also hope it may be the site that took a risk in listening to an IRA bomber who maybe, just maybe, may speak into the lives of young Republicans who may want to be dissident bombers and ask them to think about another way. You may, you may not know, but to those outside protesting last night, Maybe this event just saved your life from a Republican dissident bomber. I hope so. Because as a Christian minister who spent 27 years working in the inner city of Belfast, never more than 200 meters from an interface through some of the most savage acts of this conflict, I want your young lives to be free from bombers. And then I concluded by saying the words of dialogue. However difficult are never as loud or as damaging as the bombs that have bloodied this place for decades. And that's why I think people of faith are the most strategic people in peace building globally. We're more strategic, 
we're better placed than politicians. So we need to tell our stories. We need to have honest discourse about the past. We need to deal with wounds. We need to deal with forgiveness. So what is required is that the community at large, battered, hurt and damaged by what has happened over that 30 year civil war, is prepared to enter into a more general process of being able to set aside the past with all its enmities, demands for revenge and start anew accepting the existence of the other. There needs to be an acknowledgement of wrongs and apology. Again, going back to that Shades group last uh, summer, August 2013, uh, this group of Palestinians and Israelis set in a dialogue between a leading Sinn Féin figure and a leading Democratic Unionist figure, which would be a quite sort of right-wing party within our province. And the Sinn Féin person turned to the DUP person and said, we have inflicted awful pain on the Unionist community. The DUP person was able to tell a story where an IRA volunteer had died and while he disagreed with the violence, he said he regretted the loss of life. A waste of life of an 18-year-old. But the biggest issue is, Beth and I have often had this conversation, how do you get private discourse into the public arena? It's incredibly difficult with politicians. They will say things in private, they won't say in public. So I think sometimes it's the role of the church to facilitate that dialogue and encourage these people, create space, create hope, create a base to allow these conversations to spill out into the public space. Yeah, one of my roles at the moment is facilitating those quiet, unseen, hidden conversations where people will acknowledge those wrongs. I mean, I mean repentance, basically, simply put, is is letting go of evil behavior and acknowledging it. And yet for apology to have power, it must be by people who have credibility and a capacity to be considered representative. And when the Loyalist ceasefire came about there in 1994, the person who read it was, was a man in his late 60s who had been involved in paramilitary activity or terrorism for decades. And he used the phrase we offer abject and true remorse to all those innocent victims. Again, that very simple phrase allowed that little bit of moving on. I mean, David Cameron, when he offered the apology for Bloody Sunday, was a massive ship by the British government compared to their attitude towards Bloody Sunday in the 1970s. Let me just turn for a moment and look at what I call toxic religion and memory. It would be wrong to describe our conflict as a, a religious war, okay, because it wasn't a religious war. I would still want to suggest that it did have religious undertones or overtones. And I've often described it in the same way that uh, the Nazis took what you and I would call religious anti-Semitism and made it racial anti-Semitism. I think many people involved in violence took what I would call the toxic polemics at times of the Reformation, which were still being played out in Northern Irish society in the 1950s and 60s. I mean, as one person said to me, and 
I just have to use one more swear word to illustrate this. Uh, he said, when you were taught Catholics were shit in Sunday school, it was much easier to kill them. So how we do theology? I mean, I'm, I'm sure none of your nice white fundamentalist churches ever said anything wrong in the 1940s and 50s about people who were black. Of course they did. Of course they did. That's why it was much easier for people to do that. I mean, Philip Yancey, one of the editors a large of Christianity Today, says he grew up in a white racist church, I think actually in Georgia, and he describes himself today as a recovering legalist. To this day. Still getting over that toxic theology of the past. So there are a number of doctrines that we spill back to the kind of 1500s and 1600s. Let me just flip these up a bit. One true church, outside of which is no salvation, error has no right, and providence. Doctor of one true church we're all pretty familiar with, you know, my... Our church is the only true church, and if you're outside of it, your chances of salvation are much diminished at best. Okay? And the, interestingly, the, the doctrine that Ur has no right is probably a little bit less known. It was developed by St. Augustine to kind of justify the use of state coercion to suppress his heretical opponents. Because they were radically in error, he said, they have no right to express or hold their beliefs. And ever since that doctrine has been put to similar use as the principle behind coercion, especially state coercion, for religious purposes. So err has no right is the doctrine behind penal laws, uh, inquisitions, forced conversions, and those similar ugly stains on Christian history. By providence, we mean, first of all, that very... So simple, basic teaching that God is at work in the world. And beyond that, the belief that a faithful Christian observer of the world can discern God's will and purpose by reading the signs of the times and human events and the natural world. Now, sectarianism comes about by a combination of these events. Let me combine... One true church with err has no right. Okay, the doctrine of one true church is simply it's a truth claim. It automatically carries with it the danger of arrogance uh, and imposition, but they're only dangers, okay? They're not necessarily outcomes. So everything depends then on how that truth claim is made. If it's made consciously and humbly, you don't have to impose it on others. I mean, if there's a, a fundamentalist church 300 meters from here and you're happy getting on the way you're getting on, that's fine. Just don't impose it on me. But if you believe that error has no right, then the chances are that your truth claim is made disastrously because if your church is the one true church and error has no right, it's your duty to say that error is suppressed by whatever means necessary. Therefore, tolerance is no virtue. Tolerance becomes a deadly vice. So the other doctrinal combination behind sectarianism was take one true church and combine it with providence. Providence, God is at work in the world. 
But if you interpret it in light of the one true church, it very easily becomes God is on our side. Bring in Ur has no right. God is on our side is likely to mean God wants us to suppress others. So the disastrous consequences are obvious. So that group, the Ulster Volunteer Force, their, their slogan is for God and Ulster, which is the northern part of Ireland. And so we make God an American, or we make him an Australian, or we make him an Israeli, or we make him whoever. But God is on our side. And so the roots of that religious sectarianism, which spilled into, I suppose, what you and I would want to call nationalistic or political sectarianism, lay in some of the polemics of the Reformation. And interestingly, 17th century France makes a very useful comparison to Ireland. Because not only did the French Protestants suffer under a similar set of disabilities, similar to those endured by British and Irish Catholics in Protestant states, but bizarrely, the rival regimes actually kept an eye on one another. And they were sometimes attempting to outdo each other. So the French justified their treatment by looking at the Irish penal laws, etc., etc. The former chief rabbi, Jonathan Sachs, said this. On one point, and it is a substantial one, the critics of religion are right. Religion has done harm. It has led to crusades, jihads, inquisitions. It has shed the blood of human sacrifice in the name of high ideals. People have hated in the name of the God of love. Practiced cruelty in the name of the God of compassion. Waged war in the name of the God of peace. And killed in the name of the God of life. Those are undeniable facts, and they are terrifying. He suggests that the great believers have always known this. Pascal said, men never do evil so completely and cheerfully as when they do it from a religious conviction. Jonathan Swift's quotation, with just enough religion to make us hate, but not enough to make us love one another. And C.S. Lewis, who was born in Belfast and went on to be professor of medieval and Renaissance literature at Cambridge University, said, I think we must fully face the fact that when Christianity does not make a person very much better, it makes them very much worse. And Sachs suggests that happens not because religion is religion, but because human beings are human beings, not angels and certainly not God. Religion is power. It bonds people as a group. It moves people to act. It changes lives. And whatever is power can be used, misused, or abused. And then he's this wonderful ending where he says, religion is like fire. It warms, but it also burns. And we are the guardians of the flame. It's very significant. I was just mentioning there to some of my colleagues that I hosted a group of Nigerian Christians and Muslims uh, two weeks ago. And that's a country I know very little about, but 50% Muslim, 50% Christian, a population of 180 million. Uh, they're a Methodist leader, Methodist bishop, Catholic bishop, someone representing the Sultan, and they're working hard 
And I, I reminded them of that. I reminded us of that. That we are the guardians of that, of that flame. It's the role of us. Those of us who are faith leaders. To create the structures that build for peace. Let me just push on a little. The churches in Ireland have carried memories of community repentance in given at meeting. So symbolic acts can make a difference. I remember in the 1990s when someone from my side of the fence up at Springfield Road, Beth, that little gate there, went over and flung a rock through the window of a Catholic single parent, a little girl at 16 or 17, and just missed her baby's head by inches. And I went over and apologized and said, that was wrong, it shouldn't have happened, I obviously got it in the neck from some people in my community with the usual they're doing it to us, and so they were. But that young woman gradually spilled across the other side of the interface and joined a, a parents and toddlers group and began to see the, the human side of the other person. There was one Jewish theologian that said, dehumanization precedes genocide. Dehumanization precedes genocide. So how do we humanize the other person? Going back to the protest that evening in January. Two days later I had a phone call from, from a girl. And after her first line I knew exactly where this was going. The receptionist, Sandra, at East Belfast Mission, puts the call through and says, you think I have a strong Belfast accent? Let me give you a Belfast accent. She says, hello, my name is Jacqueline and I'm a born-again Christian. So I immediately knew where the conversation was going and I said, yeah, go ahead. She says, you are a disgrace, a disgrace. I says, tell me why. She says, you brought, a, you brought a murderer, you brought a murderer into your building. How dare you do that? And she says, I was across the road protesting against you last night for bringing a murderer onto the Newton Arch Road. So I says, tell me, Jacqueline, are you, are you against murder? She says, I most certainly am. I says, well, interestingly, in the protest, I, I think I saw at least two or three murderers who were standing with you, who were also protesting. And I think the best of my knowledge is God speaks there in the Ten Commandments when he uses that phrase about not killing or murdering. I'm pretty sure it's not in brackets. It's okay to do it to Catholics. And she slammed the phone down. How do you deal with that mentality? And you do need to bring in your extremes. You know, I know it's very easy for us today to, to criticize that person. And I'm happy enough to do constructive criticism. But in any peace process, you need to bring in your extremes from all sides. So the churches have a role in that. Imperatives such as love, kindness, peacefulness, patience, self-control, non-retaliation, forgiveness. We need to take those words that we glibly tease out on a regular basis much more seriously. We need to remember and feel the pain of failure to face the damage that has arisen from an unhappy past. We need grace to turn away from the captivity of our limited visions and our tattered absolutes. So really in reality, I think the church should be 
setting the way in any society. Because throughout that Old and New Testament, people are called in many, many ways to remember God's acts. And so that power of memory that we see spilling throughout those biblical stories. In the Exodus story, the Israelites who are about to be made victims by the Egyptians are delivered in the resurrection. Jesus who's made a victim by the religious and the political authorities and the crowd is vindicated by God. That's a radical and subversive change of perspective. So at the heart of the Christian faith is a person who did not make victims and yet was put to death as a guilty one. Do this in remembrance of me. But we also need to understand the power of sectarianism and racism. Final story, then we'll get a conversation. I was crossing that interface again at Beth Nose's Springfield Road on a wet night and November, December, sometime in the mid-1990s. Uh, and this, this kid, I guess she was like 16, 17, she shouts at me, Hey Gary, I'm dating a wee boy from the other side who's Catholic. That may seem like nothing till I tell you. Where my grandfather is buried, two graves of my grandfather are the graves of two brothers. They were called Orr was their surname. They were murdered by the IRA and their tattoos were cut off and sent back to their parents for dating Catholic girls. Most people in the 70s who fell in love from either side of that uh, sectarian divide, particularly if they were working class, they, they had to go to England. They couldn't stay in that toxic sectarian cockpit of Northern Ireland. So I said to this kid, oh, that's great, that's great, that's great. And I meandered on to my church council meeting. But as I was going in through the door, I said to myself, isn't it awful that we've taken the most basic human emotion, love, because all of us in this room have been in love, we're in love, or we've fallen out of love. We've all done that. We've taken that most basic human emotion and we've destroyed it. And that's what racism and sectarianism, that, that's what they do. They destroy that most profound of human emotions called love. And that's why those of us who are people of faith need to stand against that toxic aspect of theology that destroys. We need to be part of that social peace process, to use John's phrase. And we need to spill out. The church has got this incredibly fortress door mentality. You know, you know we're building, in your context, you're, you're building like million dollar salt depositories. The church is meant to be a salt dispenser, not a depository. And when people bemoan to me the state of society, I often say it's, it's actually our fault. If you want to ask me why society is the way it is, it's primarily the church's fault. Because Jesus uses that analogy. If you rub salt into the carcass of a putrefying society, it's going to change. But we're too busy with this fortress store mentality hiding behind closed doors while the world is chaotic. So for all of us today, we have that ability to go out, to roll up our sleeves, to engage. You know Dorothy Sayers, who was one of the Inklings, and 
drank beer in those wonderful pubs in Oxford with C.S. Lewis and Tolkien. She uses that phrase, the disturbing Jesus. And she says, we have very effectively purred down the claws of the land of Judah, made him a fitting household pet for old ladies and pale curates. We need to let that disturbing, radical, peace-building Jesus completely loose. The preceding program is copyrighted by Emory University.